are in the third week of our series, Truly, Madly, Deeply. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, truly love, and we talked about how the culture sends us all kinds of messages about love. And uh, what we decided is we had to discern, are those messages biblical or not? Uh, and uh, we, we discovered lots of truth there. If you missed it, it's available via podcast. Uh, so you can go to the iTunes, uh, the podcast store and download it there. Uh, or you can just stream it right from our website. Uh, we would love for you to stay up to date on all the messages that you might miss. Uh, last week, uh, we showed a video about the necessity of being fully transparent in our relationships. And today, I want to talk to you about marriage. Okay, so open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, I want to start with verse 21 and uh, read through verse 32. Ephesians 5, uh, 21 through 32. As a reminder, if you have a smartphone and you have the, the Bible app that is published by Uversion, uh, you can go to the live section. We have uh, the scripture there for you. We also have some sermon notes so you can follow along uh, and uh, a link to our website there for you, just for easy access to the web. And uh, also, it'll be up on the screens. So let's uh, follow along with me as I read Ephesians chapter 5, starting with verse 21. It says this, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your... Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, people have never hated their own bodies, but they feed and care for them just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body." For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. You know, married, uh, a couple weeks ago we talked about truly love, and today I want to talk to you about being madly married. You know, married life can be a bit maddening at times, uh, we have, you know, if you have kids and, and busy schedules and a social life and, and chores and life decisions and, and you sort of have this thing called life swirling all around you and it can get overwhelming, it can seem chaotic and at times even maddening. And then on top of that, if that weren't enough, if life weren't enough to make marriage maddening, one of you is always late and the other one is always early. One of you right now is so hot you can barely stand it, and the other one is freezing right now. Right? I mean, it's just, if that weren't enough, it's just this this idea of of joining our lives permanently to another person is this, well, actually the, the line that we probably identify with the most in the passage that we just read is when Paul says, this is a profound mystery. Right? I mean, this is a mystery. About all of this. But at the same time as it being a mystery, marriage is also quite beautiful. But I want to say to you that, that uh, it is also anything but sentimental. Um, Hallmark cards are, are great, but they don't really get to the nitty gritty of what married life really is. Uh, married life is anything but sentimental. Sentimental. 
married life is, is glorious, but it's hard. It's, it's a true joy. It's a source of strength, but it's strength and joy that comes through blood, sweat, and tears, right? Those of you that are married are saying amen, but quietly because you're sitting by your spouse. <laughs> but you know what? In our culture, marriage is also on decline. The number of young married, young married adults continues to drop uh, for a couple of reasons. Young adults are waiting longer and longer. 30 is the new 20. 40 is the new 30, uh, which means I'm only 20. Yes. And uh, so, you know, like, so we're waiting longer and longer to get married and also uh, living together. Cohabitation is on the rise. And what that leads to is in our culture, we have fewer and fewer young married adults or adults get, young adults getting married. And, and I suppose that part of that is, is that this just, it's not just that the hard statistics are down. Less and less people are getting married at a young age or young, less and less young adults are just getting married, period. Uh, but, the, but the expectation of marriage is also in decline. A 2011 study showed that teenagers are becoming more and more pessimistic about the possibility of living happily ever after in a, in a, married, in a marriage relationship. Um, so there's sort of this growing pessimism about marriage in our culture. Uh, people are less confident that they will be happily married. And even if they are in a stable marriage, they feel like that they will be bored in marriage. And so as a culture, largely we have believed what comedian Chris Rock said when he said, Would you rather be single and lonely or married and bored? And we've believed it. We've bought into it. And we've said, uh, either I'm single and I'm kind of lonely, or if I get married, at best, I'm going to be bored. Because what am I going to do with the same person for the rest of my life? So marriage is in decline. And um, my goal is this morning is twofold. It's, It's to help us improve our marriages, for those of you that are married. Uh, But if you're here today and you're single... Uh, I want to, and you're thinking about getting married or you hope to get married, uh, I think it would be advantageous for us to, to begin thinking correctly about marriage in general because there's so many messages uh, against married life in our culture that I want to take a few moments uh, just to, uh, to talk about uh, how married life is, is a great thing. So, uh, so this is for everybody. If you're married, uh, if you're single, if, you know, if you're breathing, this is for you. Everybody breathing? Okay, very good. Looks like it. Okay, so let's, uh, let's get started then. We've already read the passage this morning. Uh, I, I want to start by saying then that marriage is established by God. Genesis 2 says the man will leave his father and mother and the two uh, and will be united with his wife. And so from the very beginning, right at the Garden of Eden, before we even have the fall of man, the, the original sin in, in Genesis chapter 3, we have the establishment of, of a man and a woman coming together to, in, in holy matrimony. And so God performed the first wedding. In Genesis chapter 2. Uh, for the, Adam and Eve come together. And then we learn for this man will leave his father and mother. Will be united with his wife. It is a proper thing. It is a good thing to be married. And I would say that outside of our relationship with God. Marriage is the most profound relationship there is. It is the most profound relationship that there is. And it is given to us. As a sign 
as a symbol, as a signpost of the greater love that God has for us and his commitment to us. When you see two people deeply in love, committed to one another in the, in the covenant of marriage, what it does is that relationship itself is meant to point us to a far greater love that God has for you and I. And the commitment between the, 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 the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, is meant again to point us to the far greater commitment that Jesus has made to us. Do you know that regardless of wherever you're at spiritually this morning, whatever decision you've made about Christ, that you know that he is utterly committed to you? I mean, that's great news. Not only is, is Jesus' love so great that the best kind of love that we can find in a marriage relationship is at best a signpost of the incredible love that God has for us. The best marriage relationship can do nothing more than point us to the greater love of the Father and the great commitment that he has for us. So regardless of what you say about Jesus this morning, he was a great man, a great moral teacher or the very son of God and my personal savior, wherever you are there, may I say the good news to you today that Jesus is utterly committed to you because he died on the cross for you and his love for you is never ending. And so the marriage relationship is given and instituted by God right at the very beginning of the story to point us to something far greater that is available to all of us. Isn't that good news? And yet in our culture, we, we, have, we have seen marriage, we, we've been so pessimistic about marriage. Oh, it'll never work. You could never do this. It's not, some people will say, oh, it's not natural for me to be with one person for the rest of my life. And I would say that is, in fact, the most natural thing because it's by God's design. It's God's design that we would only be with one person for the rest of our lives. And so, first of all, we have to understand that The marriage is established by God, and it points us to something greater. Which is why, at the very end, Paul says, this is a profound mystery. And all of us are like, amen, you know, I get it. This is a profound mystery. And then Paul says, what I'm talking about, though, is Christ and the church. He wants us to understand that even though with all these instructions for husbands and wives, what he's ultimately doing is giving us a picture of the great love and great commitment that Jesus has for us. And so marriage provides for us a picture of God's love and commitment to his body of believers called the church. And this is why we not only need to take marriage seriously, but also why we need to understand it properly. Now, I'm a big fan of understanding passages in in context, right? And so most of us, we've got these little headings in our Bibles, and uh, we'll just, you know, we just like, oh, there's a heading. This must be, must be totally separate thing. It's unrelated to what's going after or before. But if you understand this in the context of Ephesians, if you understand these instructions in the context of Ephesians chapter 5, what we realize is that Paul is not just very specifically talking about marriage, but he's talking about marriage in the context of just finishing talking about 
about the spirit-filled life. The spirit-filled life is the sort of, that's the God-driven life. That is where my full commitment belongs to God. My, My very drive and direction is given from him. And so I am led by the spirit in life. I'm filled by the spirit. I'm taking on the characteristics of the God that I love and serve. He's working in me, transforming me into the person that he desires me to be. Paul is talking about the spirit-filled life. And he's using language like this. He's he's saying, put on the new self. He's saying, stay away from sexual immorality. Stay away from greed. Stay away from coarse joking and all of these kinds of things. And he's saying, you are put on the new self. And then here's what the new self looks like. Now, those of you that have been in our church just a little while, we just got out of a, a series on Colossians. And all of this ought to sound very familiar. Right? I mean, this is very similar to what Paul is also doing in the book of Colossians. But he's telling us, in Christ, we can put on a new self, and the things that define this new self are no longer greed, are no longer coarse joking, are no longer lying, is no longer sexual immorality. But instead, he says, you once were in the darkness, now step into the light as a child of the light. This is all that Paul is talking about right before he talks about marriage. Isn't that interesting? And so I think what Paul, again, we can't say, oh, these two are completely unrelated, but rather we need to understand what is Paul, what is Paul ultimately trying to get us to? And I think what he's trying to get us to understand is the intimate connection between the spirit-filled life and the married life. In other words, let me say it to to you this way, that the, the marriage, your marriage will never be all that God intends for it to be without being spirit filled. Without being totally driven by God, that God is your number one priority, not your spouse, that you've got to have yourself given over to Christ. If that's not the case, then ultimately your marriage won't be all that God intends it to be. It may be good by the world standards. It may be all these different things. But to have all the fullness of what God has created this relationship to be, there's a direct link between having God as our king, our primary allegiance, the spirit-filled life and living happily married so that your relationship does what it's intended to do point to the greater love of God the Father and the greater commitment of God the Father now I know that's not easy to hear Uh, and I know that that might be you know an offense to some but that's really what Paul is teaching us is that for our marriage to be all that God intends it to be there's a there has to be that spirit-filled link in there. The other thing I think that Paul is doing here as we look at this in context is that he's ultimately saying that the gospel transforms us in such a way when we, the, when we place, when we were given our new self in Christ, when we step out of the darkness and live as children of the light, there's a profound thing that happens. And that is that our self centeredness goes away. Now, we may still fight it every now and then. It's not to say that we'll never be self-centered uh, again or we'll, we'll, never, uh, you know, we'll never be greedy again. But it is to say that the self-centeredness is no longer the king of our hearts when we are made brand new in Christ. And that is a necessary piece of being married. It's as though Paul is saying you can't be self-centered and in a healthy marriage relationship. It just won't work. 
Which is why I think he says these instru- the very first instruction is that submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This, this submission, this mutual submission between husband and wife is the very thing that points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So for those of you who are single today, uh, I, I would, I would uh, encourage you with this. As you're looking at potential spouses, as you're looking at potential mates, make this your number one criteria. Do they love Jesus? Not does their grandma love Jesus, not did they grow up in a Christian home, but do they love Jesus? I would encourage you to make that your first criteria. Yeah, but they're so hot. I know. Do they love Jesus? Yeah, but we we have so many things in common. Awesome. That's going to work really great in your Christian marriage. Right? So make that your first criteria. Because what Paul is saying is that there's a direct link between the spirit-filled life and a marriage that points to the greater love of Jesus. I don't think I'm making any friends this morning. So I'll just keep going. So Paul gives us this opening instruction. Submit to one another then, out of reverence for Christ. Now again, I want to I emphasize this, but again, Paul's assumption is that the spirit-filled life is necessary for the marriage relationship to be all that God has intended it to be. I want to pull two things out of this. First, if you want your marriage to reflect God's love, to your spouse and to the world. In other words, if you want your marriage to do its job of pointing to a greater love, both to the world, where, they, where the world would look at you as a married couple and, 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 and have a sign or a signpost or a shadow of the God's great love for us. If you want your marriage to do that for the world and do that to one another. Isn't that the great thing of marriage? Is that it's not just the two of us together sort of mirroring and pointing people to the greater love of, of Christ and commitment. Other people looking in, but we can do that for one another. That as we selflessly love our husband or wife, we're, we're demonstrating to them the great love that God has for them, the great commitment that God has for them. So first, if you want your marriage to do that, then your priority should be maintaining your relationship with Christ. And so if you're married today and your marriage is a little bit on the rocks or you're having some difficulty or you're engaged and things are starting to get a little shaky and you're not quite sure and you're trying to figure out how to fix this relationship, many times our first sort of response will be to go to the self-help section of, of, a, of a bookstore and try to get a book on marriage. Or even better, we'll get a Christian book on marriage. And those are all great. And those are great Those are full of great advice and you need to learn how to fight fair and you need to learn how to communicate and you need to learn all of these things. But don't make those your priority. That if Paul is making a direct link for us between the spirit-filled life and a marriage that points to the greater love of Jesus, if you want a quality marriage that points to Jesus, then make your relationship with Christ the number one priority in your marriage. Oh, come on, I thought for sure I'd get an amen on that one. Now, again, the tools for for learning how to communicate and learning how to fight fair are all great. But don't do those in lieu of pursuing Christ. Because as you pursue Christ, he's going to do far more in you than that book ever could. 
He's going to transform you in a way that that great advice never could. So what I would encourage you to do is as you're pursuing Christ first, then allow the Spirit of God to work through the great advice, the self-help book, or all these other tools that we can use to improve our marriages. The problem is a lot of times is we seek those kinds of things in a vacuum. In other words, our relationship with Christ is crumbling Our relationship with our spouse is crumbling, and so we go to the self-help book rather than pursue Christ. So again, there's that direct link, and and, and so I want to encourage you that the first thing is, yes, these other resources can be helpful, but realize that the greatest asset to a great marriage is the spirit-filled life that Paul has been talking about leading up into this passage. So that's the first thing. Submit to one another. Paul's assumption of the spirit-filled life is necessary for the marriage relationship to be all that God intends it to be. The second thing is that Paul is not describing a relationship between two needy people. Now, come on. If I haven't made friends up to this point, I'm really going gonna, gonna to start making enemies on this point. Paul is not describing a relationship that is between two needy people. What do I mean by needy? And that's a, that's a bit of a rough term or a difficult term, but here's what I mean. Someone who is emotionally needy is all the time looking for affirmation, all the time looking for um, support of their value and their worth and their purpose. And if you are looking to your significant other to answer your questions about worth and value and purpose you are ultimately making your spouse your savior. What the Bible indicates is that we should be firm and secure in our worth and our value and purpose, allow those things to be found solely in Christ. And if those things are found in Christ, and Christ is filling me up, where I have a great confidence in what God has called me to do, I have a great confidence in who God has called me to be, and what he says about me, then I'm filled up, and the the, the result of that is I'm able then to submit to one another. The submission is this idea of a bondservant, where I am putting the, the needs of my spouse ahead of my own. I am emptying myself into the life of this other person, But if I am always seeking to be filled up through this other person, then I can never empty my life into theirs. And if they're filled up, always emptying themselves into me more and more and more, and and, and all this, we're going to dry them out if we aren't filled by Christ so that we can be emptied into into the life of our other, other significant other. Does that make sense today? See, we, we get really we get hung up on this term submit because uh, it sort of indicates all sorts of things for us. Like it, it brings to mind all kinds of gender roles and, and, and the modern woman will be like, I am so over gender rules, right? And, and gender roles and what, what I'm supposed to do. I am so over that. And so this idea of submit gets all, we get all, you know, frantic about it because we misunderstand it. But ultimately what, what Paul is painting a picture of is mutual submission between husband and wife, pouring our, our lives into the life of the other person. And we're doing that 
out of reverence or in worship of Christ. So that if we're pouring our lives continually into one another, out of reverence for him or as an act of worship to him, then that in itself begins to point to the great love and commitment of the Father. And so Paul's indication is that the, the, mar- the marriage relationship is not for people who are looking to their spouse to fill me up, but rather for the person who's been filled up in Christ and then is in a position to empty themselves out into the life of the other person. And so a quality marriage that lasts a lifetime is hard work, and it requires that the Spirit lives through us, and it requires that we act selfishly. But in our culture, we've gotten this all wrong. Marriage in our culture has become about self-gratification, never wanting to make any sacrifices for the good of the relationship, but rather just something that I can go into for my personal benefit. So we go and we scan and we look at potential partners and we say, what can I get out of this if I marry them? And if it would be really advantageous for me emotionally, financially, all of these kinds of reasons and we enter into a marriage relationship simply out of self-gratification. And this is especially prominent in guys. I, I, have, I have couples in crisis that come into my office and the guys can't figure out what's wrong with their marriage even though four times a week they're playing basketball and the other three nights a week are dudes night. And they've got, they've got their wife and two kids at home, and they're never there. And they have believed that it is, I can enter into marriage, not sacrifice anything, not empty myself at all, but I'm fiercely independent. I can do what I want. I'm a dude, right? And so I don't, I don't need to empty myself out at all. If, if she has a problem raising the kids, that's her deal. Now, this sounds really strong, but I've heard this before. So it's very prominent in guys. They don't want to sacrifice their independence when they get married. And and, and so some guys will be like, dude, you got to call your wife and ask permission. I don't got to do that. And I look at them and say, your marriage probably sucks. (laughs) I'm going to call my wife and I'm going to ask her if it's all right. And if it is, then we'll go. And if it's not, I'm going to empty my life and I'm going to sacrifice for her so that she's filled up. And she'll do the same for me. But if you sit there with, like, you know, like, oh, you're some sweet dude, you know. Man, I, I need no woman tell me what to do. You got a terrible marriage. So I may be wimpy, but I got a great marriage. <laughs> you know, what guys are doing in our culture to avoid this is they're living together. Cohabitation is on the rise uh, like you wouldn't believe. Here's a quote from a report that was studying all these kinds of things and these happenings in our culture. This is what it said. Uh, It states this. This is not good, by the way. This is to illustrate a wrong state of mind. The the, The report concluded this. Cohabitation gives men regular access to the domestic and sexual fulfillment of a girlfriend while allowing them to lead a more independent life and continue to look around for a better partner. And all the women are like, no, you didn't. (laughs) <laughs> so the, the, the biblical picture of marriage is this emptying out I'm filled up by Christ for the purpose of emptying my life into the other person you might say well that sounds all very depressing when am I ever filled up if I'm continually emptied emptied it is a universal truth that fulfillment does not come from a fierce independence, but from, from a submission. 
This is all over Scripture. That true fulfillment doesn't come in saying, it's all about me and I'm going to fill myself up, but rather, true fulfillment comes as we empty ourselves out. Let me give you three scriptures that illustrate this truth. Matthew 16, 25. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to save it. I'm going to save my life. I'm not going to make any sacrifices in marriage. I'm going I'm to keep doing all the things that I've always done. And, and I'm, I'm going to save my life as a single dude. Guess what? Single dude, your life changes when you get married. For the better. Because whoever will lose their life for me will find it. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility, value others above yourself. That's what Paul's talking about. In a marriage relationship, the, 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 a God-centered marriage will value the other person more than ourselves. It's not, it's not about thinking less of ourselves. It's about thinking of ourselves less. Galatians 5.13, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge in the sinful nature, but rather... Serve one another humbly in love. Paul connects two ideas. Freedom and service and serving. You would think that the servant is the one who is trapped. But Paul says, if you really want to be free, and as you are made free in Christ, don't don't abuse that freedom by indulging in the sinful nature, but rather express that freedom to the greatest level of freedom, which is actually found in serving one another. If you want to be fulfilled in marriage, empty yourself out. That doesn't make any sense, but the, the, the God that we serve and his kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. The first will be last and the last will be first. If you want to be fulfilled, then empty yourself out. This is the beautiful picture that God has given us in his word of marriage. But the negative view of marriage in our culture has grown as we have become more selfish. And we've come to understand marriage as something we enter into strictly for personal benefit. But it turns out, however, that a truly God-honoring marriage is where spouses both serve one another. And it is very fulfilling for both. Those of you that are married are like, this is awesome, but this isn't practical. Because in a daily life, you can have thousands of decisions that could go one way or the other. Who's going to be in charge? Who's actually going to make the decision? Somebody has to get their way. We can't always empty ourselves out. Great, inspirational, Pastor Andy. Awesome. Not really applicable in the real world, right? That's what you're thinking. If you weren't thinking that, I guess you are now, okay? Here's what it really looks like. Seek to put their needs before your own. And as I've said, it is not thinking less of yourself, but it is thinking of yourself less. So functionally, someone has to have their way when a decision needs to be made. Let me, let me frame it in this way. There might be one in the couple that always puts themselves in the position of the servant, that always puts themselves in the position of making the sacrifice. If that's you, if you're sitting here today and you're like, you know, that's me, I'm always, you know, from my, from my chair, I'm making more uh, sacrifices than my spouse. I'm the one that always is giving. Uh, if that's you and you feel like that today, and chances are both of you are thinking that, I would, I would encourage you to ask the question, are you doing that out of pride 
in order to be in control and have the moral high ground. Right? Like if you always put yourself in the servant seat, if I'm always the one making all these sacrifices, is it really like a, a heart given over to serve them that, that is driving that? Or is it this pride that says, if I give up one more time, if I sacrifice one more time, I will have the moral high ground as, as sort of the, the hero of the relationship. Because part of the beauty of, of this and the way that God has designed marriage is that part of being served, part of serving is the willingness to be served. So if you find yourself saying, oh, oh, oh no, 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 whatever you want, honey. And that's like your, your, your like common line all the time. Whatever you want, whatever, no, whatever you want. Is it pride driving that? Are you seeking to gain the moral high ground? When you do that, you're robbing your spouse of the opportunity to serve you. You see, in a proper God-honoring marriage, each one is always trying to continually serve the other, which means at some point we have to be willing to be served. And it sits and it rocks in balance in this beautiful imagery of what God has created. So while some of you today, your next step will be to start really serving your spouse, and you've been the one that says, I'm, I'm fiercely independent, I don't need to do any of this, and, and I don't need to make any sacrifices in marriage, there will be others of you that will, are the exact opposite will be true for you. What your next step will be is that you will need to allow your spouse to serve you. So it goes both ways. As I close out, let me say a few things. The thing that gets in the way all the time of of serving one another in marriage is self-centeredness. Self-centeredness sort of forges a wedge between this radical servant generosity that the Bible calls us to in marriage. And uh, chances are, after one to two years, or probably one to two months, and maybe even one to two weeks of marriage, three things happen. Number one, you discover how selfish your spouse is. Number two, they are having the same experience, and they realize how selfish you are. Number three, you determine that their selfishness is more of an issue than yours. And if they would just stop being so selfish, you would have a better marriage. And so what the scripture is really calling us and encouraging us to do, again, is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We have this self-centeredness in us, this propensity towards it. But rooting that out in our lives ultimately means understanding the gospel. The gospel that God, who loves you deeply, gave himself up for you. He died, gave everything that you might have life. He took on your sin so that you wouldn't be enslaved to it any longer. I think that if we just did our best and sort of like tightened our moral 
belt strap, you know, and, and just tried to do it through our own effort, we would fall short every time. But if instead, in trying to root out our self-centeredness and improve our marriages, we instead look to the cross and truly understood all that God has done for you and I and all that he gave up in order to serve, then, that would, then we would be, if we would understand that, then we would begin to express that in our marriages. Because the beauty of it is this. As we see the cross of Christ and all that he's done for us, how he emptied himself for us that we might have life, as we see that, our response is what? To empty ourselves for him. He emptied himself to be in relationship with us. And our response to that emptying is not just to take all that God has to offer us and say, thank you. But rather our response to Jesus' emptying for us and our, on our behalf is to churn and again empty all of ourselves for him. And I believe that the reason that Paul says at the very end, this is a profound mystery, but what I'm talking about is Christ and the church, is because this is the example of what a marriage is supposed to look like. One empties their life into the other, and as a response of gratefulness to the other person and all that they've done, is to empty ourselves back into them. And it's this mutual emptying and filling up that, that, that gives us a picture of a great God-honoring marriage. But so many times it's just one-sided. There's one who empties and one who just collects. Or one who refuses to accept anything that the other person tries to give. And yet they continually try to empty and they find themselves dry. What God has done on our behalf and our response to him is, in fact, a beautiful picture of what marriage is intended to be.